The New Testament reading today is from Matthew 15, 21 through 39. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion of the, on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven, and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children, and after sending away the crowds, he got up, he got into the boat, and went to the region of Magadan. This is the word of the Lord. What did you hope? It's good to be with you this morning as we continue our sermon series through the Gospel of Matthew. And before we turn to this particular text, let us turn together to the Lord in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given it to us. We thank you for the promise of the gospel that it declares. And Lord, I do pray that all that follows would be faithful to your intentions for this text, Lord, and that through your Spirit, you would apply these wonderful truths to our head, to our hands, and to our hearts. We ask this, Lord, in the name of, our, of your Son, Jesus Christ, and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, today's passage, it begins with Jesus withdrawing to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And this is an area that is Gentile in its makeup, in its culture, and in its history. And then while Jesus is there in that region, a Gentile Canaanite woman, she comes to him. She comes to Christ, and she cries out, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. She refers to him here as the son of David. She recognizes what so many others have not. And certainly this is not a person that we would expect to make this connection. She realizes that Jesus is the long-promised son of David, the Messiah, God's great king that will deliver his people. Clearly, 
She understands, she knows this promise from the Old Testament. Clearly, she has heard that one will come who will establish the reign of God in the world. And clearly, she takes this promise seriously enough to act on it, even to identify this very man, this man Jesus, as the fulfillment of that promise. And specifically, she comes to Christ because her daughter is suffering from some form of demonic oppression. We're not given details here about what the demon is doing, but clearly it is tormenting this young girl in some tragic way. And the demonic oppression is bad enough that it drives this mother to throw herself upon the mercy and the goodness of Christ. But how is it that Jesus responds? Well, he doesn't respond. He's silent. He answers her not a word. And this does not bother the disciples. This doesn't strike the disciples as strange. As strange. This is exactly what they would have expected. What else would Jesus do in response to a Gentile woman? But as time goes on, eventually the disciples do become angry. They're annoyed. She keeps crying out and she will not go away. And so we read, His disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. And how is it that Jesus answers? He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And this is a surprising statement considering the circumstances. Jesus here is in a distinctly Gentile region. And we've already seen, for instance, Jesus heal the servant of a centurion, a Gentile, in chapter 8. And if you remember, the very first people that come to worship Jesus in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 2 are Gentiles, the Magi, the wise men. Even more, immediately after this exchange with the woman at the end of today's text, we see Jesus heal and feed a crowd in the region of the Decapolis, which is another heavily Gentile region. And so certainly many in this crowd who heard his teaching and ate his bread were Gentiles. And if all that is true, how is it that Christ here can say, I was sent only only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Again, this is Christ Jesus. This is the divine Son. This is the divine Logos become human. If he says it, it is true. Jesus does not lie. So then, in light of all of this, what is going on? How is it that Jesus is sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. If this wasn't the case, Jesus would not have said it. And to be sure, on the face of it, this fits exactly with what the disciples expect. Jesus, the son of David, the Messiah, proclaimed in the Hebrew Scriptures, of course the disciples think he is only sent to his own Hebrew people. 
But again, what about all those Gentiles who have come to Jesus and who have received Jesus as one sent? What about all those Gentiles who have received his teaching and healing and have even gone so far as to identify him as the Messiah, as the son of David? What is going on here? Well, we find here a host of complicated biblical issues. In that sense, this passage is maybe more complicated, more complex than we initially think. And in order to untangle this knot, let's fast forward to the end of this particular account. We read, Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. So first, note two things here. Demonic defeat and human faith. Demonic defeat and human faith. And to trace this out, we are going to have to work through some biblical theology here. So you're going to have to bear with me for just a bit. Importantly, the defeat of the, de- the, defeat of the demonic is actually a key part of God's very first promise of salvation and deliverance. If you remember, this is in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve disobey God, and so human sin and human death enter the world, and God proclaims to Adam, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for you are taken out of it, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. But amidst this curse of death, we also find the promise of life, the promise of the defeat of death and the defeat of the devil, the promise of the gospel. God goes on to declare to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This promise of bruising is the curse of the defeat upon the serpent, and it's the promise of hope to Adam and Eve. Or, as one writer says, the deliverance of God's people always comes through the destruction of God's enemies. God's people are saved when God's enemies are defeated. But how, then, do Adam and Eve respond to this promise of God? They believe it. They put their faith in it. And how is it that we know this? Well, we can't forget that Adam doesn't actually name his wife Eve until after they receive the promise. It's not till after the promise that we read, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of the living. In this world of death, we see that the man and the woman believe that God will still bring life, and will do so through this particular offspring. And we know, we know this because amidst this world of death, Adam names his wife Eve, mother of the living. They believe God will bring life from death. They trust in God's promise. And this is the very first instance of salvation in Scripture. And this pattern will continue to be the one and only way that we receive salvation. Salvation is by faith in God's promise, the promise that is fulfilled 
and Christ Jesus, that promised offspring. This is just as true in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament. The only difference is if we are looking forward to God's fulfillment of that promise in Christ in the Old Testament, or like us and like those in the New Testament, if we are looking backward upon that promised fulfillment in Christ. Either way, all salvation is through faith in Christ Jesus. And we see the very same pattern with Abraham, the father of the Hebrew people. In Genesis 15, God repeats his promise to Abraham to be Abraham's God and to bring a people from, for himself from Abraham and Sarah, a people from whom this promised offspring will come. And after God promises to Abraham, we read, And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Yes, this is the doctrine of justification by faith here at the very beginning of the Bible. Abraham has been given righteousness, that perfect standing of the perfectly human life before God, and he receives it by faith. Just like Adam and Eve, Abraham believed God's promise, the promise that God would be with his people and would bring life to his people from this offspring. And just like Adam and Eve, Abraham received salvation. God then goes on to make a covenant with Abraham, and it is a covenant entered by faith, by believing God's promise that this offspring will come, will defeat Satan, will bring life from death, and will reconcile God's people to God in perfect communion. We read in Genesis 17 that this covenant with Abraham is everlasting. Everlasting. That means it never ends. That means that once it's instituted, it keeps going and going and going. And so God makes with Abraham an everlasting covenant that is entered by faith. Okay? You push back, you ask. But what about Jeremiah 31, which reads... Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Isn't there a new covenant here? Well, yes and no. And, and here we come to a question that every Christian tradition must answer. How is it that God's covenant is everlasting as per God's promise to Abraham? And how is it that God's covenant is new as per God's word through Jeremiah? How are we both to understand the everlastingness and the newness? Every Christian tradition in some way, shape, or form must answer this question. This is a key biblical theme. The Westminster Standards, the confessional documents of the Presbyterian tradition, they refer to the saving covenant as the covenant of grace. It runs throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, and it is everlasting because it is the same covenant given to Abraham. And as with Abraham, it's a covenant we enter by faith. Okay, but what about the newness? Well, the Westminster Standards tells us that it is administered and it is carried out and new ways as we go from the Old Testament to the New Testament. It's the same covenant, but it has new and different covenant administration. The Old Testament administration of the same everlasting covenant in the Old Testament was carried out by promises, prophecies, and sacrifices, all of which ultimately pointed to Christ. 
to this promised offspring who will crush the head of the serpent, the devil. And Christ himself directs us to this during the Last Supper with his disciples. Breaking bread and pouring wine, Christ tells us that this is the new covenant in my blood. And when does Christ talk about the newness of this covenant? When he is administering the covenant. In fact, when he is changing the administration of the covenant. Because what is the Old Testament administration that corresponds to the New Testament administration of the Lord's Supper? Well, it's the Passover. And rather than killing the yearly lamb and rubbing its blood on the door, Christ here presents himself as the lamb, as the one whose body is broken and blood is shed in place of theirs. Yet here, too, we see not only a newness, but also a tie to the everlastingness of that covenant given to Abraham. In Genesis 14, the priest Melchizedek, he blesses Abraham, and he even administers what might be called the first official sacrament of the Bible. We read, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. Before instituting the Old Testament sacrificial system, while Levi, as the author of Hebrews tells us, was still in Abraham's loins, we have a priest presenting bread and wine to God's people. This is sacramental. And at the Last Supper, we have Christ, the great high priest who was prefigured by Melchizedek, doing the very same thing to his disciples with bread and wine. So yes, in one way, Christ introduces a new administration of an everlasting covenant, but in another way, he recovers the very first administration. And I know that was a lot, but what does any of this have to do with the text at hand? But I would argue this background is absolutely essential in understanding today's passage. First and foremost, it helps us understand Jesus' use of the term house of Israel. Again, as Jeremiah tells us, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. This new administration is for the house of Israel, but this new administration is for all nations. Yes, special emphasis here is placed upon the house of Judah from which Christ himself will come, but the new administration of this everlasting covenant will bring absolutely all peoples in to the covenant. But how can all peoples be a part of the house of Israel? Well, this brings us back to the faith of this Gentile mother. Again, Jesus commends her faith and her trust that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of David from the house of Judah, the one long promised who will establish God's kingdom, the one who has the power to defeat the devil, in this case, the demon tormenting her daughter, the one who will crush the head of the serpent who even now has poisoned the life of her dear daughter. And if she has true faith, then by the standards of the covenant entrance given to Abraham, she is part of that covenant. She, in fact, is a daughter of Abraham. Paul makes this quite plain in Galatians 3. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. 
And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. Paul explains that the children of Abraham are those who share Abraham's faith in that same promise, the very same faith that justified Abraham before the Lord. Or as Paul explains in Romans 9, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Paul is saying that biblically speaking, the true sons and daughters of Abraham, the true Israel, are those who share Abraham's faith in God's promise. And please, please, please hear me. This is not supersessionism. This is not the church superseding or replacing or displacing biblical Israel. No, we find that in both Testaments, the people of God have always been those with faith in God's promise. This has always been the way, the framework of God's everlasting covenant with his people. The church does not replace Israel. No, the nations, the Gentiles, all the peoples of the earth, they are grafted into the people of God by that promise first given to Israel. And please note, this promise is fulfilled by a distinctly Hebrew Messiah. This is not the displacing of Old Testament Israel. This is its full fruition. So yes, Jesus is sent only, only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, to all those who are scattered in all nations by the devil, and yet who will come to place their faith in him? Jesus has come to rescue them, to find them, to deliver them, and to crush the work of the devil in their life. And of course, this Messiah in whom they believe will always be the distinctly Jewish Messiah of the Hebrew Scriptures. But the disciples do not yet understand Christ's mission. And so, when Jesus finally responds to this woman, he does so with a kind of imagery meant to mock the assumptions, to mimic the assumptions of the disciples. We read, She came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. In these actions, Jesus is putting on display the faith of the woman. He's letting the disciples see her faithfulness. She will, she will do anything to come to Jesus, to plead to him, to throw herself upon his goodness, his mercy, his power. Clearly, she trusts him. Clearly, she has faith in him. Clearly, she believes that he alone is the one who can crush the serpent that is tormenting her daughter. Even if it is just a morsel of bread, a crumb that falls from the table, even if she must lap up crumbs like a dog, she will do it. Because where else can she go? Who else can deliver her daughter? What other hope is there but Christ Jesus? The crumbs of life are infinitely better than any feast of death. And the term Israel can be used several different ways in the Bible. 
For instance, it can refer to a cultural people, a national people, or a distinctly covenantal people who have been reconciled to God through faith. Remember Jesus' word about the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus is not talking about who he was first sent to. If that were the case, then yes, you could make a case that Jesus was speaking about cultural or national Israel. But no, remember, and take this seriously, Christ tells us he was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And if Jesus is not sent to this woman, then he should not be doing what he is doing for her. And if Jesus was not sent to us, we have no reason to be gathered right here, right now, at all. And so Jesus certainly seems to be using Israel here to refer to God's people who share Abraham's faith. As Jesus makes clear by commending her faith, this woman is no dog. She holds fast the very same faith as does Abraham. And so she has become a child of Abraham, a beloved daughter of the promise. We see that she is one of those lost sheep of the house of Israel to whom the son of David from the house of Judah has been sent. She has come to take her place at the great feast. And speaking of a feast, I don't think it's any coincidence that Matthew follows this account, this image of the breadcrumbs, with Jesus feeding several thousands in an area known as the Decapolis. We find that in verses 32 through 39. Again, the Decapolis is a heavily Gentile region, and certainly many in the crowd were Gentiles. And they, just like the woman, have heard about the son of David. And they, just like the children in Jesus' maxim about the breadcrumbs, they are seated at the table feasting upon the bread that Christ has multiplied. We read, And the crowds all ate and were satisfied, And the disciples took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Yes, there were crumbs left over on the floor. These broken pieces. But only after both Jew and Gentile had both feasted to their fill. Both had eaten at the table as children of Abraham. There are no dogs here. And it's certainly not unlikely that this Canaanite woman and her daughter were a part of this crowd. But take note, there's something about the bread. After giving thanks for the seven loaves and before miraculously distributing it to the crowd, notice what Jesus does. He broke the bread. Before he could feed the children at the table, The bread needed first to be broken. Remember that what is new about the everlasting covenant with Abraham is its administration. And here in feeding both Jew and Gentile, this breaking of bread points us to Christ's new administration. Christ is pointing us forward to another breaking of bread. We find the following account in Jesus' administration of the Lord's Supper to his disciples. In Matthew 26, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. 
And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is Christ's initiation of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And again, Jesus does this as a kind of new Passover celebration. Jesus presents himself as the lamb that was slain, the one whose body is broken, the one whose blood is shed. The Lord's Supper becomes the new Passover. But technically speaking, the Passover lamb does not stand in the place of all the people. It only stood in the place of the firstborn, the oldest son. Think, too, about the other New Testament sacrament, baptism. This, too, is the New Testament, the new administration of that same everlasting covenant. Baptism becomes the new administration of circumcision. And while circumcision could be applied to more people than the Passover, to all the male children and and not just the oldest, it was still limited in its administration. It could not be applied to daughters. But think about who Jesus heals in today's passage. Christ heals this little girl. Christ heals one for whom the Passover lamb could never stand in the place of. Christ heals one who could never have received the covenant sign and seal of circumcision. Christ heals one who can now fully participate in the new administration of that everlasting covenant. Who is invited to bear the sign and the seal of this everlasting covenant, the sign and the seal of baptism? Not just sons, but daughters, and specifically this little girl. For whom was Jesus' body broken? Not just the oldest son, But for this little girl, specifically, for this little lost lamb of the the house, for this little lost lamb of the house of Israel. And it is by and because of this breaking that Christ is ultimately able to heal this girl from the tyranny of the devil. Remember God's words to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Yes, Christ, this promised offspring, this son of David, he will bruise the serpent's head. He will defeat the serpent. But take note, the serpent will bruise Christ's heel. Christ's body will be broken like this bread. His blood will be shed Like this wine, yet the serpent's bruising of Christ's heel will be the serpent's own undoing. Why do we bear the corruption and illness and maladies that we experience in our bodies? Why do we find the deep corruption of pride and envy and jealousy and bitterness and greed deep within our hearts? Why do we suffer the corruption of death? Because we all bear the curse of a sinful humanity because we let such evils into God's good creation. And now we bear these things as both the punishment and the consequence of sin. And Satan acts through each and every one of these things to work misery and evil and the million forms of death in our hearts, in our lives, in our world. Satan bruises much more than our heel. Satan breaks us like bread. Satan bleeds us like wine. And Satan, Jesus tells Peter, 
seeks to sift us like wheat. But Christ, this promised offspring, is the sinless one, the one who lived the perfect human life free of any evil, the perfect human life dripping, absolutely dripping, with full love for God and neighbor. When God the Son took our humanity, He lived the life we should have lived, the life that merits no punishment or death, but merits the greatest joy in and with God. Yet on the cross, when His body was broken and His blood was shed, Christ suffered the judgment that we alone deserve. Christ took death, that great tool of Satan, and bore it on His own shoulders. But then Christ was raised again. The God who is life itself, the God who became human, could not be held by death. And so Christ sprang again from the tomb, never to die again. And when Christ did this, he crushed the head of Satan. And this is also true for us, in part now, in one day in full. Paul tells us in Romans 16, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Christ defeated Satan in the resurrection when he defeated death. And Christ will one day ultimately demolish Satan through us. When death itself is destroyed, when Christ returns and raises all of those with faith in Him to eternal life. Both the serpent and his tool of death will be wholly defanged. To again quote Paul, O death, where is your sting? This is why all those years back in Eden, all those years ago, There was no better name for the woman than Eve, the mother of the living. Christ gives us what we alone merit and takes upon himself what he alone, sorry. Christ gives us what we alone merit and takes upon himself what we alone merit if only we will receive him by faith. This is the very same standing before God, that very same righteousness that Abraham received so long ago when he placed his faith in the promise of God. This is the very same righteousness that Adam and Eve received when they believed the promise. This is the very same righteousness that the Canaanite woman received because of her faith. And this is the very same righteousness offered to us. No one has ever been saved except by the righteousness of Christ, freely and graciously given to them by faith. The only question is whether they were looking forward to Christ's fulfillment of God's promise or if, like us, they are looking back upon it. So then, in application, I think it would be helpful to say a bit about saving faith. What is this faith that brings us into this everlasting covenant with its new and wider administration? Notice what Christ tells the woman. O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. Christ here draws a tight connection between faith and desire. Christ shows us that saving faith requires desire. The 17th century Reformed theologian Petrus von Maastricht, he tells us that saving faith involves both the intellect and the will. It involves both knowledge and desire. Yes, we must have a knowledge of Christ in order to place our faith in Him, to trust Him as the fulfillment of God's promise. 
but we must also desire Christ. Think about this woman. She was willing to bear the scorn of the disciples to come to Christ. She was willing even to bear the scorn of her own culture's dislike of the Jewish people so that she could come to Christ. Do we desire Christ more than the acceptance of a passing cultural consensus? And besides, Pastor Tim Keller, he reminds us that however enlightened we think that we are, our grandchildren will be embarrassed by so many of our, strong, our strongest opinions. If you don't value Christ more than this, have you truly come to Christ as this woman has done? It's only by God's grace that we stay faithful. But as you get older, you see more and more people making a complete shipwreck of their faith because they long so much for the approval of some culture or some group, whatever its ideological position. I urge you, whatever the cultural pushback, just like this woman, never cease to cry out to Christ, to rest your hope in Him, to desire Christ. And what is it that this woman wants? She wants deliverance from evil. She wants deliverance from the work of the devil in her life. Do you want this? Do you really want this? Do you really want deliverance from the sin in your life? Do you really want Christ to heal you from the jealousy or envy that keeps you glued to social media for hours on end? Do you really want to be healed from the stress that comes from making sure that your kids have the very best college application? Do you really want to be healed from the neglect of family and friendships that comes with working too much? Do you really want to be healed from the anxiety that comes from making sure you have enough finances for each and every possible emergency? Do you really want to be healed from the pride that pushes you to be at the top of your field at any and all times? Do you really want to be healed from your temper that is uniquely powerful at getting your family to fall into line? Do you really want to be healed from the greed that keeps you from generosity and from charity? Do you really want to be healed from the lust that constantly pushes you back into pornography? Yes, all of these things can be excruciating, lifelong battles. Absolutely. But if these things never change in your life, you desire these things more than Christ. We find that we love success or status or approval or resources or social media or control or sexual excitement more than we love Christ. If these things in our lives never changed, then we have answered Christ's question to Peter with a resounding no. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Think about the life of some great Christian that you love, that you admire, that you respect, and then ask yourself why your life doesn't look like that. The answer is very easy. You simply don't want it to. You desire something else more. And believe me, I am speaking just as much to myself as I am to anyone else in this room. One day we will look back on our life and perhaps we will wonder why we loved and desired Christ so half-heartedly. 
But now, while it is still today, remember that today is a day to love Christ more fully. Because one day, and one day sooner than you think in this present life, today will be gone. Pray that the Holy Spirit, who is the very love of God, the very love and desire of the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father, ask that the Spirit will set your heart aflame in desire and love for Christ. Ask that the Spirit will usher you into that very love that He is, the very love between the Father and Son that they lavish upon one another for all eternity. And hear me, this is the beauty of Christianity. We are called to love God with the very love that is God, the Holy Spirit. This love itself is a gift from God, and amazing to say, this love itself is God. Saving faith desires Christ. That is why it is only in response to saving faith that Christ can say, as he did to this woman, be it done for you as you desire. May we desire rightly. Only then will we desire, only then will what we desire be done unto us. Only then will our faith be saving. Only then will Christ seat us at the table as children of Abraham. Let us pray. God our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you, Lord, that you call all of us into your covenant, that you call all of us to sit at your table and eat the bread of Christ. Thank you, Lord, that salvation is and has always been by faith, because it's by faith alone that we see receive the righteousness of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.